In this episode of On God and Money, I talk about the difference between your financial self and your spiritual self, how to start a company instantly at scale, and what does it mean to pursue money in a world made by God. Hey everybody, Rashamini, Adamini Corp. It's another episode of my podcast on God and money. It's a weird thing, the interplay of God and money. Our spiritual nature versus our finite and often overly practical nature. Often I think about how we... How one makes money. It's something when I was younger I had no grasp of and truly did not understand what people meant when they were referring to the economy or, you know, how it produced value and revenues and so on. And yet, it's at the basis of everything we do. We're all working jobs, and trying to make money. Yet, it can be very taboo to talk about money because we often make more than, always make more than someone and less than someone else. So it can make people... You know, does that mean you shouldn't share? It's tough to say. My rule of thumb is that you don't tell people who are not involved in the deal the terms of the deal because it's not their business quite literally so someone often to understand how to make money you have to have someone kind of show you walk you through it and that is specific to how they make money I don't think anybody else as far as I can tell I don't think many people are worried about the universal or knowledge of making money. As in, how does anybody go forth and make money, even though each and every one of our paths will be completely different? And, you know, segmented, hyper-segmented into markets and so on. So this is something I've thought about endlessly ceaselessly, without end, without reprieve, since 2010, when I started graduating college, getting with, within, striking this, the real world, and had to figure out how the fuck do you make money? Not how do you get a job, because that's a subsect, but how is money made? How can I make money? And ultimately it comes down to sales, which is interesting. But the thing I, one of the many things I learned along the way while failing constantly was the idea of an economic avatar or a financial avatar, how how this idea that your bank account, 
bank account is a representation of an aspect of you. And while you are priceless, truly, your financial self is very, (laughs) one might say, accurately priced by the market, which you could maybe think of as the aggregate or the sum total of all people that you interact with through any amount of degrees of separation. So you interact with all the people that picked your food and all the builders that built your home and all the homes you see and so on and so forth. Yet that only represents a small fraction of the world and society and the economy in general. So on one side you have your spiritual self on one side of this equation your total (laughs) your equation and your spiritual self is priceless without price is infinite and quite literally transcendent if you don't believe in a soul you haven't read enough On the other side of the equation is your financial self. Very discreet, very uh, priced, and what would be the opposite of transcendent? Mortal, perhaps, right? Can't take it with. So, first you have to understand these two pieces. And that when you're trying to make money, you need to be thinking about your financial avatar. Oftentimes, when I was a kid, when I was younger, and I would get an offer to do something, if it was not what I thought I should be making, which, especially in my early days, was way too high for what I provided, what I felt, it was what I felt I was worth. Yet when someone offers to pay you, you're getting real market feedback. Because they know that someone else can come along and pay you to do something and you can't work for them. So how bad they want you and how important the work is and how likely you're to be taken up by another opportunity, your time, your attention, are real factors that go into that price point. And I used to get so indignant and proud and pissed and angry. How dare they not, you know, pay this? Or how dare they disrespect me? And I think this is a common sentiment amongst immigrants, in America anyway, and perhaps especially so amongst Middle Eastern folks, I myself being one of them, where our pride is serious. seriously detrimental to our financial success and uh, you know it was tough I was continuously humbled by life to finally accept and see what the problem was and address it and you know along that journey I realized I'm not my bank account if I was I would be worthless because I've had bank accounts that were so low 
They were scary. And we've all been there, I think. Or if you haven't been there, then you don't know what the fuck is going on with the average person on this planet. If you've never freaked out over your bank account, truly freaked out, then I hate to say this, but to borrow the phrase, you're quite privileged. And that's all. There's nothing wrong with that. But your worldview is highly limited. So just be aware of that. Be careful. You have blind spots you're unaware of. You can fix it through empathy and dialogue. You don't need to feel it to know that it's scary. Right? You can talk to people about it and so on. And so this idea of our financial avatar, if you want to make more money, you have to have a better financial avatar. Business is ultimately a game with winners and losers. And you have to, I think, think of it as such and treat your financial avatar like a video game character. And if you've played any of these video games where you build your character before you go out on all these quests and whatnot, or even if you're picking a fighter during one, you know, in one of those kind of 2D uh, fighting games, then you're going to have a set of attributes that are common amongst all players in the game. And they're going to have different levels of those characteristics. And we're all ultimately then going to have a certain set of characteristics, traits, skills perhaps, and we're all going to have different degrees of competitiveness or um, complacency, but competency. Now, another thing, I'm speaking to my 25-year-old self here, is the simplest way to make money is to know how to do something that everybody wants, right? Your income is directly proportional to your skill. Let's see if I can remember this. Your skill times the demand divided by the uh, supply. So what you do how in demand it is divided by how many people can how many other people can do it and maybe multiplied by some variable of quality that's maybe from negative one something like that I don't know let's just say from zero to one so if you do something well you get paid better than if you paid if you do something poorly so your net your income your personal revenue, if you will, if you treat yourself like a one-person multinational corporation, which I naturally do to myself, which is very strange, but turns out to be lucrative. Your personal revenue equals your skill or skills times the demand for that skill divided by the supply of that skill. That whole number times your quality factor of zero to one. If you want to make more money, have a skill that everybody wants and nobody has, and there's very low demand. 
and then do it really well if you want to make the most money from that skill. So brain surgeons, neurosurgeons, very, very high, uh, high skill, low demand, not necessarily, excuse me, low supply, not necessarily the highest demand field though. It's not like it's a common thing to get brain surgery. But the skill is so hard to learn and the quality factor to keep it you know, high is so hard to come by that the demand is very low. So you make six figures easily, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now you have to go to school for that. If you wanted to make the most money in the fastest way possible, hmm, today it would probably be using a computer. It would probably be marketing or software development. In particular, I think B2B marketing and no code development. I think those are the best ways to make money right now for something you don't need a college degree for, no college could train you in, and there yet, and so there's a plethora of online resources and ultimately on the job training app, real life experience is the best teacher. So just doing it teaches you how to do it better, right? And so this financial avatar, I was thinking, what makes, what are the characteristics that one needs to thrive in this economic game of ours? I think communications is one, like resiliency is another, vision is another, dependability is another, um, motivation is another, and maybe ability to learn. Learningness is another. So that is just off the top of my head. It's a deep question, and I'm not sure the answer to it, to be honest. But if you can communicate well, you can talk your way through a hell of a career. Especially at the upper levels, it all becomes reading and writing anyway. And, and speaking. Communicating. Um, resiliency. So how easily do you lose your nerve? How long does it take for you to rebound from failure? How big of a handle or how much failure can you handle before you quit? We all have breaking points, but it's a exponential, it's a steep learning curve or a steep curve to have optimal resiliency. And obviously if you're too resilient, you're not flexible enough. And I would say maybe that's the other part is vision. Hey. Hi. It's really a question of what can you see that others can? How clearly can you see that which is hard to see? And I think it's a factor of or a uh, variable of flexibility. Because if you can change your vision quickly then your target changes and you naturally start pursuing the new target. But a lot of people, and myself included, 
you can get target lock quite easily. It's a phrase I've picked up from somewhere in the military world, I think. Or I assume it is, perhaps. But needless to say, when you get fixated on a goal and you can't see other better goals because you're fixated on this one. And oftentimes it's a pride thing. Don't want to admit defeat. Hey man, sometimes you have to surrender. Oftentimes in business you have to surrender. You don't get to dictate market demands or the competitor's strategy. So seed ground as quickly as you can. Surrender as quickly as you can so you seed as little ground as possible. Right? You move your resources to other areas. Um, I just got an intro to an awesome merger and acquisition guy at a huge company. A company the size of the company I'm trying to buy a division from. And, uh, Jesus fucking Christ. This is going to be crazy. So, I went to the mayor's office and... They absolutely loved my idea, and they're going to help in any way they can. Not only that, our objectives are highly aligned. They're trying to, in Charlotte, recruit more technical people from all over the U.S. to live here. And I'm confident that my purchase, relocated here, will make for a hell of a PR story. And so I want everybody to participate, because we can all share it then. And this isn't something I can pull off of my own in a vacuum. No, 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 no. This is a big endeavor. We'll see what I can buy it for. But, you know, the only, not the, the only piece I, I had no idea about. The others, I, other pieces I know at least who to ask help from, and I know how to... I know how to learn more about. But the piece that I have no clue how to pursue is the actual acquisition. This is a division of a giant fucking company. How do you t- talk to them? Like, literally, I call them and <laughs> ask to talk to the CFO, and they're like, his contact information isn't listed. I'm like, oh, Jesus. So I connected with the arguably second-in-command of finances at the megaship, the mothership, saying, hey, let's talk. No response. Not to mention several people in the organization itself that I'm seeking to purchase. Um, And then my question is, like, do I get access to your financials? How do I know what to bid? Right? I need to... how, How do I know what I'm buying? This is how ignorant I am. I've never gone through anything like this. Do they have to open up their... They have to open up their books. I talked to a lawyer who was like, yeah, they can't expect you to know what to pay without giving financials. I'm like, all right, how do I get those financials? So now I have an intro to someone that could tell me that process. How awesome is that? I asked for an intro. 
and I received one. I told someone what I'm doing and they're helping me. That's the benefit of mentors. They help you because you help them. How do you help mentors? You connect them with new opportunities because you're closer to, you got your ear to the ground. You help them refine their learnings. They have decades and decades imparting upon you and in the process of teaching you things that they take for granted, knowledge and wisdom they've gained over years, slowly, piece by piece, they get to recontextualize it and see which, that it, how it impacts you. So if something, of a concept that theirs really blows you away, smart mentors know, that, oh, this is something I should tell other people about. Or is this, something, this is something I should rephrase or so on, right? And then if you succeed, you make them look good. Because they mentored you. So, always have mentors. One to three at least. The odd thing is, well, everybody has their, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, so, yes. I might be able to put a bid together here. I have the money. I got the people with the talent pipeline, the city of Charlotte wants to help with recruiting for us and everyone else to follow. We would be the crown jewel of the Queen City, whose logo is a crown, which is awesome. Um, but what we do will be repeated, I guarantee you, by those to follow. And I spoke of this in the last podcast, is I'm trying to do this every Friday, um, so I can publish them, well, I don't know, we'll see. Um, my shift from venture capital to private equity how venture capital is too conservative for so many reasons and is not interested in truly scaling and societal change it's really not and I think it's going to be up to business people to take the software developed by venture-backed businesses and implement them into companies they've purchased with the help of private equity. I see a blue ocean opportunity here. Because there are so many businesses sitting around that have plateaued. You could buy them, turn them into a new business or a base for a new business. You can get all the software that's out there and not have to talk and convince. You know, first, if your goal was to make these companies better... There's really no other way to do it best than to buy them and restructure them to your own liking. Oh, this guy's bike is legit. Hauling ass on a fat, tired bike that's also electrically boosted. All black. (laughs) The guy, too. A white guy. Fat white guy, but all black everything. Kind of cool. And, uh... Yeah, like, you know, what are you going to do? Sell new software into a company? There's too much legacy code and, re- and pol- policies and, and workflows to just re-gut everything. So pretty much you have to be the CEO and you have to have the money to do it. Well, to be an old-fashioned CEO, you got to get your MBA and work your way up and get a couple wins. And then you'll get you know, offered all sorts of opportunities to be CEO of all sorts of companies. 
Or you can talk to investors and tell them what you want to do. You could put a deal together. And uh, a good friend of mine called it acquisition, uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. I'm, I'm liking that. Because you get instant scale. Oh, the idea of starting a company like this and getting it to the point where it's at now. I mean, it literally took over 10 years. No, <laughs> it's too slow. And it's like, why would I reinvent the wheel? They have everything I need. It just needs to get rearranged and kind of remolded and reinvigorated and repositioned. And so I think a lot of people are going to do this because there's a ton of private equity that's open to this. Family offices, nonprofit foundations, and all the like. And a uh, um, ton of companies that are just floating on, floating by. And uh, what was I saying? Uh, getting run down by bikers here. There's so many pieces on the board. There's tons of capital, tons of software, tons of companies. It's the Wild West. I mean, it's not even the Wild West. There's no settlers. There's no towns. It's like pure blue ocean opportunity. Just endless, endless fucking opportunity for anybody that wants to participate. So, yeah. The one trouble I have is that the capital that's currently most interested is getting a little too excited about the PR and wants to move the company to their city because of the favor it would from their mayors and uh, it's the wrong city how do I know that? I don't but I'm, my gut tells me it's the wrong city my instincts it's obviously the wrong city to me, and that's what your instincts are is what's obviously true to you, effectively. That's how I think about it. So that's what I mean when I say that. So I need to find better capital. Good news is, there's a ton. There's a ton. So I'm in charge of putting the deal together, and uh, I, I get to maybe not dictate the terms, but it's not going to succeed without me. Everyone else, unfortunately, is interchangeable. I'm the only one that cannot be replaced. Because nobody knows enough about media and so on to make this happen. Conversion marketing and everything. So, so that's a very interesting place to be in. Because this is like, this is my 100x shot here. All my other stuff, Vigilant, Stack Farm, Speechfully... They're going to take forever to scale. Like, forever. And I'm thinking to myself, man, how long until they're, you know, it's going to take forever, forever. And at the same time those things are getting off the ground, I could be running a giant company. Like, that's the bandwidth they require right now. So, it's very interesting. And by 100 scale, I mean like literally the financial numbers are 100 times larger than I've been playing with currently. Now, speaking of large financial numbers, stack.farm. 
Oh my God. So the other night, I, I couldn't go to bed. I was crunching numbers in my head. And I ran to my laptop because I got excited about this idea. Look how beautiful Charlotte is. It's just a fucking river in the middle next to a, path, a walking path. Right by my house. It's insane. If you can hear the water, it's beautiful. Um, so I grabbed my laptop. I have a financial model. Three-phase, three-tier, 13-year financial model. Obviously, it's less accurate than every year goes out. But, that being said, this year, it's built on an e-store. Selling, monetizing my R&D. Building up a revenue base, customer base, that I can leverage to generate the income needed to um, raise money, secure debt, build a facility. And maybe... We're just equipment manufacturers. I don't know. But man, this company has like legs. Oh, I wish I could tell you the IP that makes it possible. But I can't. Because people like... (laughs) I could rattle off names. Would come and steal it out from under me. It's fucking snakes in the indoor farming space. There are so many snakes in the indoor farming space... It's incredible. I'm not going to list them because I don't want to get sued yet. But fuck them all, man. I can't believe it. How dumb they were to think they didn't need the person who invented the idea. Like, you think, <laughs> you think you're going to scale it to its utmost potential without me? Like, those are people that can't come up with ideas. Therefore, they don't know how innovation and creativity works. There's a guy fishing in this river. Only in Charlotte. Um, silly, silly monkeys, um, apes, (laughs) and so I have a lot of resentment towards them, uh, no, not not really, I just think it's funny, um, regardless of how we're going to do it, in my financial model, some VC was like, oh, you got to have this, this, and this in your finance, it's amazing how so many entrepreneurs don't, I'm like, dude, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm switching gears here. In a good financial model, you should have a column of your assumptions, your key metrics. Because if those things change, the whole financial model changes. And the whole idea of fucking Excel is having a dynamic financial model. So you can change the price, or the cost of labor, or the price of rent, or the square feet of rented space, or whatever. And your financial model will change. Right? The growth rate of whatever drives your revenue. So you can make a high, medium, and low estimation. And as you put deal, the deal together, you can see, oh, in this building, this is what will happen, right? And so people can play with it. Um, so one of those things for me in an e-store is, you know, the conversion rates of ads and emails and landing pages and so on. And I know what I've gotten in the past, excuse me. And so I put all, those inf- all that real-life information in there. I know all the assumptions that are real based on reality, based on my personal experience, which is new for indoor farming for me. At any rate, I misplaced, I mislinked one of the cells. So one of my conversion rates was, I was basing it off of a a, a, a 1%, a conver, a, a, at the end of the day, right, there's an ad conversion rate, email conversion rate, and then uh, landing pages and then in the email 
it's what percentage of people are going to end up buying, right? One to three percent of your traffic to your landing page or your, your, your e-store will end up purchasing. So if I'm continuously sending and only sending people to sales pages of, of the e-store from my emails, that's really good traffic. And over time, it's a reasonable assumption to say one to three percent of my email list will purchase, which is also reasonable in email marketing. So I saw these numbers for three years of revenue based off of my ad spend, and I'm like, oh, that's good. But I thought it was based on, I thought the numbers were too high because, and I had thought I'd linked it to a 3% conversion rate. It turns out my numbers were were high, but they were actually based on another sell for a 1% conversion rate. So all of a sudden, I type in 3% for real, and everything triples, and I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. What I thought was the upper limit of success was actually the lower limit, the lower bound of success. So I got real excited, because I'm like, oh my God. (gasps) This thing could pop so hard. So, bought the first system of what I'm gonna go ahead and say is the first commercial model. No more prototypes. Got an e-store set up, working on distribution. But it turns out, every uh, I wanted to drop ship, but every fucking retailer I talked to is missing, the wholesaler from Hydroponics is missing a bunch of different stuff from their inventory because of just market conditions. And I'm like, hey, what the fuck are you all doing? Like, yeah, everybody has like a 60 to 70% order fill rate. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. So, like, critical stuff. Oh, here's the boomer zoomer. Uh, sweatpants, butt crack, the whole nine yards. Pedialyte or Gatorade in the back. <laughs> I envy the man. Um, so, yeah, like, critical things, like the trays I needed, are, like, not carried by many people. I'm like, oh, God. So... I have to figure out logistics and fulfillment and inventory management. But getting the system together and getting the pre-orders and getting the um, getting the business set up, the supply side of the equation will be figured out later. First, I need the demand. So I'm going to be selling these kits for about a grand, which is half the price of previous kits I've sold. They're still going to... I mean, they made too much food before. So cutting the size in half. Literally cut the price in half. Why are there just trash cups across the street? Kids must party down there. Because it's insane. The amount of plastic cups down there. That's so gross. Oh, what is going on? At any rate, so I got a free warehouse space, industrial as fuck, on the second floor, obviously, because <laughs> that's how my indoor farming life is, and uh, parts are ordered, they're shipping in over the next few weeks from all different sources, and then I'll have to figure out the 
supply side of the equation, but demand is getting, it's going to get pumped up. I can't wait. And what I might have to do, or what I think I'm okay with doing, is put the thing up for sale on a certain date. And, uh, you know, right now I have to put in like probably four to three to two to four week delivery time because of all the parts coming from all these different places. Some of them I just can't speed up. And then maybe use that pool of cash for orders to buy bulk orders and ship them out myself, which I'd be happy to do. It's just you need the bulk orders and I'm not interested in buying a ton of inventory for this thing once again. It's fourth time, you know what I mean? No risk anymore. I don't want any more risk. I've taken too much life, too many risks. So we'll have to figure that out. But fuck, the numbers look good. And the numbers are real. They're not, there's no assumptions in there. These are all historical figures that I myself have produced. Now, I've never produced them all in one company one go so there's definitely what you might call integration risk of each step in the buyer's journey but that's different than not knowing you can get a whatever click-through rate on an ad or a you know so on and so forth people even if, if, if these conversion rates these are all numbers from indoor farming different indoor farming projects and ventures let me put it that way that I've gotten produced myself um, so that's fucking good. And then, of course, speechfully is speechfully the runt of the litter. Wow, it's so pretty. Which I'm going to hopefully leverage for this deal. That'll be the way I launch it. Speechfully is one of those companies that it can only handle one client right now. It's just the way it is. Highly technical and, uh enterprise sale so consider my venture my deal the first sale I'm putting together for speechfully um let's see where are we at on time cool 30 minutes everybody's good introduce cool So, I was talking to one of my partners this this morning, and we're talking about how resource constraint guarantees success because you can get too many false positives by having too easy access to capital. That if your thinking isn't right, if your vision isn't clear, you think that. Because I got a check from an investor, therefore I know what I'm doing. Therefore, you know, and we got this, we we pitched this crazy growth rate. Now we got to slam the gas. But the need for speed is a dangerous thing. And how clarity of vision and customer acquisition are the two defining values metrics or variables 
that determine success in startups and businesses, new businesses, and um, maybe business in general. Especially startups, especially new, uh, you know, new product launches, go to markets, but you know, very much so in go to markets. Go to market being like, you got a new product, how do you sell it? Who, where, what, when, why, how? All right, what's the product? Who's the buyer? Where do they buy? How much is it? Why are they going to buy it? When are they going to buy it? And I think I said where. Why they're going to buy it. So, whether you're a giant company launching a new thing or a non-company launching a new thing, an individual, you have to do the same stuff. Yet it's the individuals that... Yet, just because you have no resources, you have a lower opportunity of success. You can just as easily be drowned by committee decisions at a large company and flop. There's been so many major flops from corporate companies, right? Nobody wants to say anything, and you launch bullshit. Yet at the same time, boy, wouldn't it be nice to work on something full-time and not have to worry about your paycheck for a year? That'd be very cool also. So I get frustrated when people raise money so easily or talk about raising all this money because I feel locked out of this venture market. But having, and I knew this the whole time, I knew I had to do it all and be a self-made man. I knew it. It was just like kind of obvious, but I didn't want to admit it because it sounded hard. So I took the hard road by virtue of having no other choice. No one ever recruited me. No one ever told me they want to invest in me like none of that shit happened I had to go find people and convince them constantly now at least I'm in a place where when I'm talking to people they want to work with me so I just have to put myself around more people not have to like you know I'm still I'm still a bit of a hunter where I go seek out and put a deal together but my point being is that just because you're alone doesn't mean you have zero chance. In fact, it's a very high chance of success if you keep iterating. And the best variables for your success are customer acquisition, speed of customer acquisition, and clarity of vision. If you know where the opportunities are and you go there and you can get customers quickly, You have business at all times. For me, I have the customer acquisition part down, but the clarity of vision is hard when you're trying to invent something and do something new. What, you know, I know generally who the buyer is, but what is the opportunity? And so lately, like last, this week, we've gotten to a new level of clarity. If we were building some contraption, this giant machine with all these different facets, I found the single corner of some, you know, dodecahedron, multi-phase die or whatever, you know, some sort of geometry that represents all these things this business can do, vigilant, excuse me. And I found the single corner that needs to touch, that will touch the market to produce... The market and perhaps being some sort of plane. Some sort of seemingly flat surface. Because the, the market is so big, 
it's the all it's the sum total of demand from all human beings, and we all have so many demands in each of us. So in aggregate, it's like crazy big. Even if you're a giant company, you're still only touching a very small percentage of all human lives. Even if you're touching a lot of humans, you know, it's the reason why Apple is so profitable. It's touching a lot of people in a lot of different ways each. At any rate, so I found the one fucking corner, edge, call it corner, that needs to touch the market first for highest resonance or just spark. You know what I mean? Kind of some sort of analogy that determines like how sticky or how in demand that thing is and how easy it is to produce that the software in this case the product offering and uh, how in demand it is and so on it feels like it's like you have this whole pencil in your hand but only the tip of the tip touches the paper right it's like you have this entire tire but only one little band touches the road at any given time so you got to find that piece to get traction and normally I would do it with multivariate multivariate testing but in the B2B space that requires a lot of ad spend and don't want to spend that much money rather talk to people get customers and Luckily, it's become obvious what that thing is going to be. So, that should be interesting. We're going to use a no-code tool to build it. And we're going to do it in Bubble. But my co-founder, serendipitously, was asked if we needed a tool from another guy that was in her World of Warcraft clan, for Christ's sake. God bless it. Um, He's got a... He's got a company, startup called Boundless. And do this guy needs to stop doing laps or up and down and go somewhere. This is getting a little crazy. Um, and he needs uh, case studies. So he's like, do you have any tools you might need for your startup? We're like, we're just about to start making ourselves who don't know anything about no code. Yes, yes, we have the simplest tool that we've come to consensus on over the past months actually yesterday we just figured it out and now you're talking to us today about making it for free on your platform which will be beautiful and it's simple unreal (laughs) and so these serendipities serendipitous encounters is god's way of telling you you're in the right place at the right time right we had the right vehicle the right idea and all of a sudden the resource is right there you don't believe in God you don't need to but I'm telling you whatever God really is the supercomputer that manages our simulation it doesn't really matter because the end objective experience is the same for every individual no matter what they believe in but if you don't believe in God you're just ignorant that's all you're you think you figured it out talking to my past self you, you oversimplify life. You don't know enough, deep enough into to, into disparate enough fields of science, biology, chemistry, physics, math, 
computing, so on. Um, and you've never experienced a miracle. Or, another way to put it is, you don't view all the, the miraculous nature of life. Every heartbeat should not exist. Every single heartbeat is a miracle. The electric pulse that drives your heart is a very mysterious thing. No one actually knows. Like, how is that formed? Well, from the energy of the pulse of your mother and her mother before that and her mother before that and her mother before that. Where did the original pulse of life come from? Oh, we say lightning. Okay. The fuck is lightning? You know, like the whole thing is absolutely insane. And so we're like the... What would you call it? Continuation of some eternal cosmic pulse of electricity. And the fact that you have 60 trillion cells in your body. And that... That's a hundred times more, more than a hundred times as many stars in the Milky Way. <laughs> Good, how you doing? And uh, they all coordinate in real time to unwind and rewind each of their DNA and RNA strands up to a million times a day. They don't have every piece they need to do what you regularly need them to do. So they have to go into some eternal ancient database and uh, pull from that the blueprint for some enzyme because you drink a cup of milk and they need to produce a ton of lactate or something. And then they go do that time, you know, however many of your trillion, 60 trillion cells are responsible for digesting. I don't know. God only fucking knows. It's literally that complicated. God only knows. <laughs> Nobody knows, really. It's all estimations. So how do we balance that holy view of life with the regular pursuit of money? How do we view money in a holy, in a holy world? To me, money is like an electron, it's a unit of charge. And unit of energy is a, is a energy exchange between two human beings. I will give you money and that'll give you financial energy to go do something, right? I will get money from you in order to do this. And just like how all life is ultimately powered by electrons flying around, you might say, um, all of society is ultimately powered by money. And one of the biggest disservices people can do, and I used to be one of these people, is think of money as evil. Just because we live in a world with evil, and evil uses money, doesn't mean money is evil. And so separating what you might call the sin from the sinner gives you a better of life, a more hopeful view of life, right? More hopeful view of humanity. God, that's so beautiful. And so ultimately, money is a tool, just like electricity, to be used by us. It can be weaponized. 
like the tariffs. Thank God we're in a trade war and not a nuclear one, which we easily could have been, given a different uh, route our politics took. Right? God, there's bluebirds and woodpeckers just hanging around. It's incredible. Um, you know, money's evil. The root of all evil is money. Money corrupts and all this stuff. And I think the more grounded you become, the more money you can handle. And the more money you can handle, the more impact you can make. And so I've been, for years, obsessed with becoming a billionaire. <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's God's honest truth. That's like one of the things I'm striving. That's probably the, the number one thing I'm striving for. Why do I want to become a billionaire? Because I want more influence in the world and its affairs. I want my ideas, which I deem good, and I work on diligently to make ever better, to be heard by the most people. I want my solutions. I want to help implement solutions at scale. And typically, I mean, there's a couple routes you can go, right? You can go into one company and help that one company make a difference in the world by deploying its technology or services or what have you. But I'm more interested in talking to the leaders of all those different companies and helping them all do better. Starting, helping people start giant companies overnight like I'm doing. It's fascinating to me. Um... The other day I put out a thing on Twitter for business models. Uh, you know, drop your URL below and I'll tell you a go-to-market strategy. And like, it's getting obscure, you know, never heard of bootstrap businesses. And it felt so good to be like, this is what you should do. Ding, ding, ding. Thanks, man. Oh, I saw some guy, Kumar, data pipe, data flow, at data something, um, do it for like growth tactics. And I was like, that's cool. He's got high engagement on those posts. And it took me a while to realize my, what I'm most excited about and I can offer help with is business models. Fundamental to growth is your business model. How are you making money? Why are people buying from you? That whole go-to-market piece is important. Then the, the marketing is an aspect of that. And I have a knack for go-to-market. I don't know why. I do and I want to share it with the world but nobody wants to hear about a go-to-market strategy for their fortune 100 company from quote-unquote some kid right no MBA no Ivy League like why should I listen of all the ideas why should I listen to this one you know so I'm obsessed with that and then part of me based on the way I was raised wants the ultimate validation of being a billionaire. I wasn't dumb like you thought I was. I wasn't crazy like you thought I was. Here's the proof, right? And I don't, I spend maybe 1% of my time bitter like Maybe, and it's probably gone down from like, let's say some maximal, you know, in the, in the throw of it all. 90% of my time bitter, who knows, a large percentage. And that's gotten down to like almost zero, but I can't deny the fact that it shaped me. And so the person I am today was shaped by that environment that I created for myself, ultimately, 
but was highly encouraged by those around me and my, you might call, supra environment. The environment in which my personal environment was created, my internal environment being my thoughts and feelings and so on. So that self-talk, that feeling I had all the time, that shaped me. And what was a liability can always be turned into a strength. So that's where I spend most of my time. Anywho, it's a trippy world. Trippy, trippy world. And you can't see it if you're worried about this month's rent. You really can't. It takes a lot of faith and diligence and, frankly, miracles to live month to month and not feel a constant or naivete, blindness, ignorance almost. To live month to month and not feel financial, uh, just a, in, in, intense and real anxiety. So, if you want to join me in not feeling that, follow this podcast. I want to. I want it to be a vehicle for a million people to become millionaires. Or whatever to, to unlock their true financial potential. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you should go over to speechfully.com backslash Amini Corp. And you can join my few fans over there for a conversation. We're going to help each other make more money, think more strategically cooperate, leverage, deploy leverage, leverage our connections, hone our pitches, whatever it is, work together, help each other out, build a little tribe of people that'll crush it. So, with that, I will end this podcast. Thank you all for listening.